Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning to you. It is 8.30 on Thursday, June the 20th. And for Desiree Fraser, I'm Jay White. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, state lawmakers are meeting with insurance and healthcare leaders to determine how they can cut red tape for certain treatments. Then, rural health care is in crisis, and experts say more action could be done to help. Plus, extreme heat warnings persist across the state, and folks are being reminded to drink plenty of water. And that's all coming up right now on Mississippi Edition from MPB News on Think Radio. Good morning to you again. House lawmakers are meeting with leaders in insurance, health care and pharmacy to better understand how a law can help cut red tape around medicine. Certain medications must be delivered by a physician or pharmacist, but those cases require proper documentation to comply with the policies of insurance providers. Among the experts speaking before the state's House Drug Policy Committee is Brad Summers. He's executive director of pharmacy services at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Part of the issue right now, or the challenge right now, is that in this entire process, the patient nor a clinical advisor on the treatment team has any say-so in where the product is coming from. That's what needs to be fixed. And that's what this bill allows to do as it removes from the requirements around, th- around that. There is no say-so from a patient perspective or from a provider perspective or a treatment team perspective of where that medication is coming from. Sommer says these hurdles created by insurance providers can slow down the process of giving treatments to patients. Safety and quality is a big concern here. The first thing being, anytime you work outside of a system's processes and procedures, you're increasing your risk for an error. It's Every system is set up to try to reduce that from occurring. If you go outside the circle, if you open the circle up and go outside that process, you're increasing your risk for a mistake. You're going to increase the risk of missing a a significant drug interaction. You're going to increase the risk of of potentially missing a significant adverse effect that can uh, impact a patient. The second point there was talking about the patients and their their inability to be able to utilize their preferred pharmacy. So most of the time in these scenarios, Um, A particular white-bagging pharmacy is going to be chosen by the payer. And typically, that's probably not going to be the same pharmacy that typically a patient is normally utilizing as their home pharmacy. Delays in treatment and shipping access. um, So say you have a Medicare patient who has a Part B supplement that can cover the medical infusion side. They also have a Part D plan. 
And say a, the insurance company is requiring it to go through a white bagging process, so it has to be processed through a Part D plan. There is a high likelihood because of the cost of these therapies that patient immediately is going to hit the donut hole. You have to get through that out-of-pocket cost before you hit the catastrophic coverage. They're going to hit that immediately with, the, with these treatments and have to come up with that cost before the shipment is going to be sent to the patient. On the flip side, from a Medicare medical billing perspective, a patient may have a supplement where it's completely covered across the board. So I think it's just a good point to bring up from, a, from an access perspective. Um, it's something to take into consideration. The, the fourth item on, on this list associates back to um, a dose adjustment. I'm going to give you guys an example here. Uh, it's not uncommon uh, for a chemotherapeutic regimen for a patient to need labs the day they're getting the treatment, the day they're getting the treatment. If you're going to go through a white bagging process, you've got to have that medication there the day of the treatment. Say the patient's getting 600 milligrams, a 500-milligram vial, a 100-milligram vial. Say those labs come back the day of, and maybe their renal function is out of whack or their liver function is out of whack or their white blood cell count's too low. Well, you have to make an adjustment on the fly. If we're able to do buy and bill, I can literally take that extra 100-milligram vial, stick it back on my shelf. There's no waste associated with that. In this situation, we have an extra 100-milligram vial that a patient will never receive. We can't use it for anybody else. So there's a waste component associated with this as well. On the flip side, say that's, that white bagging pharmacy is doing their job, they're seeing those treatments, and say two months later, you check labs day of, and now, hey, their, their, their function looks a lot better. They need that 600 milligrams. Well, now you're going to have to completely stop the show. You're going to have to get with the, the white bagging pharmacy. You're going to have to delay the therapy, get the patient rescheduled, because I can't just grab that extra 100 milligram vial off my shelf. House Bill 1316 was introduced during this year's legislative session and would have prevented insurance providers from enforcing these restrictions. The bill failed, but could be reintroduced next year. Republican Representative Lee Yancey chairs the House Drug Policy Committee. He talks with our Will Stribling about what he's taking away from the hearing. The goal of this bill is to give patients a choice where they buy their prescription drugs. And these are specialty prescription drugs that are not easily self-administered. So it's not all prescription drugs we're talking about. We're only talking about IV drugs, uh, injection shots, uh, those kinds of things. And right now, um, the PBMs or insurance companies are steering patients to a particular place to get that drug. And it may be a specialty pharmacy that's in another state and, and their drug gets mailed to where they're going to get the treatment rather than getting the drug from the place where they're getting the treatment. And so in the process of all that drug traveling all over the place, the problems are chain of custody. Uh, what, if the, what if the situation changes and there needs to be some update to the medicine, then you've got to order it from that place again, send it back, have it redone. It may have expired, may have been exposed to intense heat, if it's out in a van in Jackson, Mississippi all day today, is that going to affect the potency or the quality of it? Uh, so what we're trying to do is to give patients a choice. We're saying that insurance company cannot dictate where the patient gets the medicine. So it doesn't require them not to use where they say, but they have other options as well. The way that it is, it sounds like that just benefits the insurance companies because they're able to to dictate where they well, get the, the insurance drugs and companies, that might be uh, The insurance companies say that that saves costs for the consumer. 
uh, and that hospital pharmacies are charging much more for the drug. And so they're saving money by getting it from the specialty pharmacy. So and there's the argument. You know, are they? Are they not? That's what we've got to discover. Uh, I'm not so much interested in a turf battle between insurance and pharmacy, but I, what I want to know is what's best for the consumer? What's best for the cancer patient? What's best for the, the man with myasthenia gravis who has to have an injection every two weeks? Is it better for them to have that medicine already where they're going to, to get it or to have it shipped there from another state or another city uh, and it might not be just right? So, you know, we're just trying to figure those things out. And from the, the speakers today, was there any any point that was made or question that was raised that jumped out to you? Like, did, you know, what did you learn? Well, I learned that there is truth on both sides. Uh, this is a this is a money issue ultimately. I think for both sides, it's a business issue, and so the question is, um, do we want to put our finger on the scale one way or the other between insurance and pharmacy? Or do we want to say, hey, what's best for the patient? What is the safest way for them to get their medicine? Uh, you know, maybe not having to travel so the medicine have travel so far is safer. Uh, maybe to have it in one place is safer and have it mixed up right there, you know. So we're just looking at ways that the consumer uh, can have better delivery of health care at an affordable price and have easy access to it. And what were the issues with this legislation in the past two sessions that caused it to, to not, you know, make, well, make it all the way through? I filed it, uh, but I didn't bring it out in my committee, so we didn't vote on it at all. So I didn't understand it, and I don't want to bring out a bill I don't understand. I thought maybe from between the time that I filed it on behalf of a friend of mine, a lobbyist, that I would try to dive into it and, and really understand it, but I, but I didn't. It's very and so, yes, so I understand it better now. The committee understands it better. And, and we have time to really think about these issues and deal with them uh, on a one-on-one basis in July rather than in January when we're drinking out of a fire hydrant and have all these bills coming at us. This gives us a chance to try and understand and try to pass good legislation and not just pass something to pass it. We want to pass something that really, really helps people, uh, you know, keeps them safe, gets them their medicine, you know. Once again, that's Lee Yancey, Republican representative, chairs the House Drug Policy Committee. Coming up, a heat wave sweeping across Mississippi could disrupt school extracurriculars this summer. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB News on Think Radio. Autocorrect on MPB Think Radio, helping you correct your auto problems. Our host is Coach Charlie Milton, ASC Certified Master Technician. Let me help save you some money working on your cars. Listen to our podcast, Autocorrect. Good morning to you again from MPB News. This is Mississippi Edition on Think Radio. I'm Jay White in for Desiree Frazier. It's heating up across the state, and the National Weather Service has issued excessive heat advisories for nearly 30 counties. At the same time, some school extracurriculars are starting back, and students will have to practice in these extreme temperatures. Our Mike McEwen speaks with Toby Collins, the head football coach and athletic director at Madison Central High School. He says it's important to watch students closely when helping them adjust to high temperatures. We start our summer workouts and summer conditioning at the end of May, 1st of June. And we are we can do a lot of things on the field. We just can't put a helmet, we can't put helmet, shoulder pads, all that kind of stuff on. 
Uh, we can't start official practice until typically the 1st of August. This year it actually falls on July 31st, the first day of official football practice is July 31st. And that's when you guys can throw helmets and pads on them? Well, we can <clears throat> we can put helmets on. We have to go this year, then it's changed this year from last year or the years past. This year, the first five days of practice, we're, we're to be in helmet, uh, T-shirt, and shorts. The second five days of practice or the second week of practice, we can be in what's called shells. That's your helmet and shoulder pads and shorts. And then the third week of practice leading up to the jamboree or the two-quarter scrimmage that we're allowed to have, you can be in full gear. And has that that preparation schedule in the off season has that changed at all, at all around you know things getting hotter generally over the couple decades you've been coaching? It's always been hot. I think the thing that's changed more so than anything is you know kids are and I hate to sound I, I hate to sound like an old timer here, but I don't think kids are outside as much as they used to be you know I, I think they're you know inside with video games and there's just more things for kids to do now than it was back in the day you know back in the day you, you got outside you were just outside all day long every day in the summer so I think to be acclimated to it is a little bit more difficult for the kids now than what what it was in years past and what are some ways that you and I guess your coaching staff and maybe some of the athletic trainers um, how do you all kind of manage the heat when you're doing these these summer workouts? What are some things you all are looking out for? Well, obviously, coaches and trainers alike are you know watching the kids very very closely. Uh, you know because the worst thing that can happen is a kid to get out there and overheat. Um, you know we're we're always you know cognizant of the temperature. Uh, we try to go as early as we can in the morning without making it inconvenient for. You know, kids that don't drive or parents that have to drop their kids off, uh, we don't want to make them be here at five thirty, six o'clock in the morning. So we go at 8. And typically we try to get all our conditioning, our running done before or sometime around 9.30. Uh, and that way the rest of the time that we're out there is a little bit more – it's not as intense. It's not as – it's not there's not anything taxing on the body. We're more working on fundamentals and things of that nature. So we try in the summer – and then, you know, the the hottest part of the summer, we're, we're trying to do all that as early as we can before the temperatures and the heat indexes and the real fields and all that kind of stuff gets up in the hundreds, you know, or one, over 105 or 110, whatever it may be. So we're trying to get all that done before it gets to that temperature. Now, the problem comes in is when we get them in school and the buses start running, you know, our athletic box, most everybody's athletic box fall or periods fall in the hottest you know, time of the day. Typically it's around two o'clock. So <clears throat> that's when you really got to be, you know, conscious of, of the temperature, the heat index, making sure that you have enough water breaks, uh, you know, trying to do as much stuff during practice as you can with this, you know, not having all the gear on. So, you know, just trying to take care of the kid. Like I said, you want to keep them, Keep them safe. You want to acclimate them to the heat as, as best you can and be slow about that. But then being conscious of, you know, it is a very dangerous time of the year uh, to be, you know, having a lot of physical activity outside. So you just got to – that's got to be first and foremost on your mind when you take them outside. 
That's Toby Collins, the head football coach and athletic director at Madison Central High School. Coming up, part two of our conversation about rural health care and what could be done to stop hospital closures. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB News on Think Radio. MPB Think Radio airs local programs every weekday morning at 9. It's your chance to learn about Southern cooking, home improvement projects, and more. MPB Think Radio, Mississippi is our mission. What are the cool kids wearing nowadays? A bucket hat and fanny pack. I meant to say a belt bag. That's the 21st century name for it. You can get this MPB branded swag package by making a one-time $60 contribution. You'll also receive a year of PBS Passport to stream new and classic shows. A mix of current and classic. That's Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Make a contribution today at mpbonline.org. From MPB News, this is Mississippi Edition on Think Radio. And for Desiree Frazier, I'm Jay White. Hospitals across the state are having to make difficult decisions as daily expenses have exceeded revenue. This problem is most prominent in rural parts of the state where many people are unable to pay their medical bills. In recent months, several hospitals have closed, laid off staff, or shut down essential services. This morning, we speak again with Ryan Kelly, executive director of the Mississippi Rural Health Association, in part two of our conversation on access to care. He says there are ways the state could take action for keeping hospitals open and staffed. It is becoming more and more of a problem. Uh, it has always been a bit of an issue in healthcare in general. In rural, it is obviously an issue because uh, we, uh, Mississippi, is a is a state with a high poverty rate, uh, and that high poverty rate is not exclusive to rural, but it is certainly uh, magnified in rural because of the lack of um, a high patient population. So, in urban areas, you do have high poverty rates. You can take. Jackson, you might look at St. Dominic or Baptist or any of the Merritt facilities, they're going to see a high acuity of non-pay patients, but they're also going to have a large number of paying patients that can make up for that. Rural doesn't have as much to make up for the gap, um, which is kind of a Mississippi thing. That's why Mississippi Healthcare, we see so many hospitals that are on a, a map for possibility for closure because we don't have a lot of margin for error. And so they're naturally based on the algorithm of how these hospitals are identified for critical risk of closure. They're going to be on there. Uh, doesn't mean they're going to close, but it means the likelihood is, is greater. Um, that's what we see in rural because there is a large number of uncompensated care claims and there's less money coming in to make up that shortfall. So now we introduce the idea of Medicaid expansion, which I, I will, I am one to say, I I see both sides of Medicaid expansion. I am in support of it, as our association is. Um, However, I can't say that the lack of Medicaid expansion is the problem because we've never had Medicaid expansion. So to say that not doing something is the problem is to say that we used to have it and now we don't have it. We never did have it. So it's not the problem, but it is a solution. And it's a solution that many other states have employed and has seen benefit in. It is not a silver bullet by any stretch of the imagination. If it was, then states that expanded Medicaid would ha- have any hospitals closing, and they would have no uh, hospitals on a list of critical likelihood of closure, and almost all of them do, with the exception of only a couple of states that are far wealthier than 
probably many of our southern states put together. Okay, let me ask um, you this. What are several options that you like to see legislators take that would benefit hospitals? Yeah. Well, I mean, so continuing on with Medicaid expansion, uh, I, I like to put it in perspective because some people will say, well, if we had Medicaid expansion, it would be our silver bullet solution. That in itself is is not true. But it is a very good solution because it would provide for many of those uncompensated care claims an insurance product that would um, be better than nothing. So Medicaid in Mississippi does pay fairly well, and something is better than nothing. It Does it cover the cost of all things covered um, by those providers? No. But something is better than zero, and there's, that's one of our biggest issues right now. And as we, we now have uh, enough foresight uh, and hindsight from uh, by other states to see that it is something that is likely doable in our state uh, in, in one way or another, uh, whether it's the straight-up Affordable Care Act version of, of Medicaid expansion or it's one of the one of the hybrid models that has been introduced by several states, and um, there, there's pros and cons, I think, in, in both capacities. That is one, one element. Um, as, as a state, the challenge that we have is so many of the issues that we face are not state issues as much as they are federal issues. There are some state things we can do. There are some things that have been done, although they're being implemented very slowly. So some of them are more technical, and those are very difficult issues because you're moving the Titanic uh, when it comes to CMS and, and what Medicare um, allows and does not allow um, I would also love veterans' insurance to be significantly better. I do not like the way we take care of our veterans at all. Although some get good quality care, the vast majority, I think, are undershot. And, and that's that on the federal level? Issue. Yes, entirely on the federal level. So in rural areas, emergency health care is hard to come by. How can that be strategized to make it more accessible? That's a good question. There, there's going to be a natural issue with emergency health care in rural areas, even magnified in frontier areas. This is one of the prices you pay by moving out into a rural community. I mean, I can't get around that. I love rural areas. I live in one. But you, there are sacrifices. That's going to be one of them. However, we can do the best we can to minimize that sacrifice. Part of that is going to be quality emergency transportation. Uh, that's another thing that if we did something as a state, and I, I really personally do not like the way that we as a state, and we're not the only ones, handle emergency transportation. It's based on the county-by-county county level. Some counties contract with very robust EMS services where they have artificial intelligence built in and they move trucks around depending on where the hot spots happen. I've seen these, uh, these EMS centers, and I've seen the hot spots open, and then they – move the trucks accordingly, and lo and behold, there's, uh, there's an issue that happens in that general vicinity, and that truck is now moved into that area, and they're now closer. It's amazing how they are able to move resources around. Um, that, I think, is the needed element for providing quality emergency transportation. Now, I love small businesses, but many of our counties employ what I would call mom-and-pop EMS services where they may have two trucks, three trucks servicing an entire county, and they don't have the, this technology built in, and they don't have the resources to, of a multi-county system to move trucks around as needed. And lo and behold, if you're the third heart attack in a county, you're probably going to be dying on a truck waiting to leave that county. Is that uh, something state funding could help with? State funding could help. 
I think the problem is really more, in my opinion at least, the strategy around how we deal with EMS. From my viewpoint, that is the greatest hindrance that we have in many of our counties is, is rural emergency transportation, specifically ambulance coverage, although you could also say non-emergency transportation is also an issue that could be correlated, but emergency transportation is a major factor. Some counties are doing it great. Some counties are doing it very poorly. Many are kind of in the middle, um, and it's one of those basic utility services that I would like to see us standardize across the entire state, whether the state controls it all or the state mandates a certain minimum requirement that is above and beyond where we are now. Ryan Kelly is executive director of the Mississippi Rural Health Association. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB News on Think Radio.